from coast to coast to coast. You're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. My name is Hannah Cunningham, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news. Before we start our episode, we would like to acknowledge that we are situated on Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples that live and gather here. I'm recording from my bedroom, which is located in Emiskwichi, or so-called Edmonton. As a settler, I'm grateful to be able to live and work here. In this week's episode, we'll be reporting on some news headlines that involve large-scale energy projects. As I'm sure you're aware, many of these projects face significant opposition from Indigenous communities, environmentalists, and other groups. It is important to recognize and remember that Indigenous people across this nation have been protecting the water and the lands we all live on since time immemorial. And as we report on these stories, it is important to empower and uphold the voices of those who have been on the front lines of environmental defense since the very beginning. The COVID-19 pandemic continues to dominate front page news, and if you're like me, it also continues to dominate the front of my mind. It can be hard to focus on anything but the pandemic, especially in places like Alberta, where case numbers are climbing once again. Listeners, we know that you're all spending lots of time taking in important information about this pandemic, protests, and other issues that are being reported on every day. So, we've tasked the Terra Informa team to gather up this month's environmental news headlines so you don't have to. That's right, it's time for another News Roundup episode. July was a big month for energy. All kinds of updates on pipelines, coal projects, environmental monitoring, and a certain bill that has now passed into law. So for this episode, we're focusing on these energy-filled, energetic headlines. Now, without further ado, here's Terra Informa with the news. First up, here's Terra Informer Andrea Miller giving us an update on Bill 1, the Alberta Provincial Government's Critical Infrastructure Defense Act. Hello, listeners. This is Andrea Miller. This month, we're following up on a headline we brought you during our June News Roundup, the Provincial Government's Critical Infrastructure Defense Act, or Bill 1. After passing its third reading and receiving royal assent, Bill 1 has now passed into law in Alberta as of June 17, 2020. To remind you, Bill 1 was introduced in the provincial legislature in February of 2020, during a peak moment of solidarity actions, including protests and rail blockades, with the Wet'suwet'en's efforts against the coastal gaslink pipeline and RCMP occupation of their territory. The mandate of Bill 1 is to, quote, protect essential infrastructure from damage or interference caused by blockades, protests, or similar activities, which can cause significant public safety, social, economic, and environmental consequences, end quote. Essential infrastructure is defined here as pipelines, oil and gas production sites or refineries, mines, 
highways, and railways. The Act states that no person shall enter or damage essential infrastructure or obstruct, interrupt, or interfere with the construction, maintenance, use, or operation of essential infrastructure. The penalty for a first offense ranges from $1,000 to $10,000 or a six-month imprisonment. The fine spikes to a maximum of $25,000 for the second subsequent offense. The bill also grants peace officers the ability to arrest, without a warrant, anyone found to be in violation of the Act. Adding their voice to the echoes of criticism for Bill 1, the Alberta Union of Provincial Employees, the AUPE, and President Guy Smith announced a constitutional challenge to the Act on June 23rd. The AUPE is Alberta's largest union, with more than 95,000 members. As a union, the AUPE negotiates with employers to secure 140 collective agreements for union members in the province. These collective agreements between employees and employers are legally binding documents that outline and protect standards around wages, benefits, and work environment. The AUPE has been lobbying for its members in government, healthcare, education, municipalities, and private companies since 1971. With a number of these collective agreements having expired and now being open for negotiations, part of the AUPE's constitutional challenge to Bill 1 states that the, quote, inability or perceived inability to engage in leafleting or lawful picketing will substantially hinder AUPE's ability to meaningfully engage in the collective bargaining process, end quote. The AUPE's constitutional challenge also echoes the many other criticisms in its objection of Bill 1. First, the union takes issue with the vague and broad language of what defines essential infrastructure, which includes any roads, sidewalks, or trails. The Act also considers the land on which essential infrastructure is located and any land used in connection with that infrastructure to be included in this definition. Given the subjective nature of this broad language, Cabinet has the authority to change or add to what is considered essential infrastructure without notice. According to AUPE President Guy Smith, this, quote, opens the door to a massive abuse of power, end quote. Next, the AUPE states that Bill 1 is in violation of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, particularly the freedoms of expression, assembly, and association. The activities outlined in the bill, including protests, strikes, and leafleting, are the very activities of a functioning democratic system, and the enforcement of Bill 1 would effectively stifle that. In the AUPE's public statement, President Guy Smith stated that the union is prepared to take this constitutional challenge to the Supreme Court if necessary. The passing of Bill 1 during a moment where 
Indigenous solidarity actions and the Black Lives Matter movement continue to grow is of particular concern, but critics say that it is not by accident. In the media release announcing the constitutional challenge, AUPE President Guy Smith iterated that Bill 1 is an effort to criminalize the solidarity efforts that AUPE has always shown for Black and Indigenous people and workers in Alberta. Assembly of First Nations Regional Chief for Alberta Marlene Poitras states that Bill 1 is disproportionately aimed at Indigenous peoples and other individuals acting in defense of Indigenous lands and waters. At a recent rally at the provincial legislature on July 11th, after the bill came into effect, NDP, MLA, and status of women and LGBTQ issues critic Janice Irwin and NDP, MLA, David Shepard were among those gathered to voice their dissent. Irwin stated that the bill disproportionately impacts Indigenous people, people of color, and many others whom the current UCP government continues to try to silence. Shepard said that the provincial government continues to show a disregard for the public sector and collective action in the province, and Bill 1 paves the way for further disregard of democratic rights in the future. As if on cue, the targeting of Alberta's public sector and labor unions continued with the recently proposed Restoring Balance in Alberta's Workplaces Act, or Bill 32. Among other regulations, Bill 32 would further infringe on the rights of Alberta's labor unions by restricting where members can picket during strikes or lockouts. Introduced on July 7th, opponents to Bill 32, including NDP opposition leader Rachel Notley, stated that Bill 32 is a further attack on working Albertans. These newly proposed bills give the provincial government a dangerous illusion that they are uncontested in moving forward with fossil fuel energy development and infringements on the rights of Indigenous people and public sector workers to gather collectively in solidarity and advocacy. Thanks, Andrea. Next up, Terra Informer Curtis Blandy reports on an upcoming public hearing about the Grassy Mountain Coal Project. Hello, Terra Informer listeners. My name is Curtis Blandy. Today I'm here to tell you about the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada's announcement in late June to have a public hearing regarding the Grassy Mountain Coal Project later this year. What is the Grassy Coal Mountain Project, you may ask? Well, it's a proposed project that would result in an open pit coal mine on top of Grassy Mountain, about 140 kilometers straight west of Lethbridge, Alberta. Benga Mining Limited, a wholly owned subsidiary of Australia-based Riverside Resources Limited, would own and operate the mine along the British Columbia-Alberta border. Their research shows there's enough metallurgical coal or coking coal which is a grade of coal that can be used to produce good quality coke. I'm not talking about the soft drink here. Coke is an essential fuel and reactant in the blast furnace process for primary steel making. The demand for metallurgical coal is highly coupled to the demand of steel. Benga anticipates the Grassy Mountain Coal Project to extract about 4.5 million tons of steel making coal for about 23 years. The annual production is assumed to drop to 3.8 million tons a year 
for the following decade or so. After the coal is mined and processed on site, it will be transported to the west coast of Canada by train and shipped overseas to Asia. The project would include the construction and operation of surface coal pits, waste rock disposal areas, a coal handling and processing plant, water management systems, an overland conveyor system, end pit lakes, and a rail loadout facility. Benga Mining, as part of the application process, has filed three applications to divert water for this project. The three applications sum up to the amount of about 3 million cubic meters of water in total, or about 3 billion liters worth of water over the span of the 24-year project. If the applications are approved, this water would be diverted from York Creek, Crow's Nest River, as well as surface runoff and seepage that would normally flow to the Baltimore Creek or Gold Creek that help feed the Crow's Nest River. This loss of water from the rivers and creeks Bengal wants diverted could be detrimental to the wildlife that occupy these natural habitats. A joint review panel established to review the proposed Grassy Mountain Coal Project and assess the environmental effects of the project has decided it has enough information to proceed to a public hearing to happen in October 2020. The panel has already invited some parties to participate in the public hearing. These parties so far include the Blood Tribe, the Katunaha Nation, the Pikani Nation, the Samson Cree Nation, the Siksika Nation, the Stony Nakoda Nation, the Tsutina Nation, the Region 3 Métis Nation of Alberta, the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society Southern Alberta Chapter, the Coalition of Alberta Wilderness Association and Grassy Mountain Group, the Livingston Land Owners Group, and the Municipality of Crow's Nest Pass. Thanks, Curtis. Now I'll be taking us from coal to oil. Here are some updates on four different pipeline projects across Canada and the United States. July was a big month for pipeline news. A big story that broke at the beginning of the month was the ordered shutdown of the Dakota Access Pipeline so that further environmental review could take place. The Dakota Access Pipeline, built by a subsidiary of the Texas-based Energy Transfer Partners, is a 1,900-kilometer-long pipeline that was completed in 2017 despite protests by affected Indigenous peoples, environmentalists, and others. This pipeline has the capacity to transport 570,000 barrels of crude oil. That's approximately 90,622,758 liters per day from the American state of North Dakota to a terminal in Illinois, where it is then shipped to refineries. Supporters of the pipeline say it provides a more cost-effective and efficient way to transport crude oil in comparison to transporting it by train. The Dakota Access Pipeline faced widespread criticism during its construction in 2017. While the majority of the pipeline had already been built, the section that was closest to the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation in North Dakota was still waiting for federal approval. Members of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe argued that they were not adequately consulted about the route of the pipeline, which was to be run under a reservoir that is on U.S. Army Corps-controlled land but is adjacent to the reservation. The proximity of this pipeline project to the reservoir created concerns about the quality of the reservation's main water source and the damaging of sacred sites, which would violate tribal treaty rights. 
In October 2016, despite a request by the Justice Department, the Department of the Army, and the Interior Department to not proceed with the project until further consultation and evaluation was done, Energy Transfer Partners continued with construction. Protests at the site lasted months, with encampments occupied by Indigenous water protectors, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, and their supporters facing violence from law enforcement, including tear gas and water cannons at below freezing temperatures. In December 2016, the Army Corps halted the construction of the pipeline in order to issue an environmental impact statement before approving the river crossing construction at the reservoir. However, after President Donald Trump signed an executive memorandum to expedite the review and approval process in January 2017, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers grants an easement allowing the pipeline to cross under the river at the reservoir in February 2017, and construction begins immediately. Despite legal challenges by both the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe and the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, the Dakota Access Pipeline was completed in April 2017. Over the course of 2017, the pipeline experienced five small leaks, ranging from 20 gallons to 168 gallons. Now, three years later, U.S. District Judge James Bosberg ordered on July 6, 2020, that the pipeline be stopped and emptied within 30 days so that another environmental review can take place. On July 8, Energy Transfer Partners filed a motion to suspend the shutdown order while it appeals the court ruling. On July 14th, a federal appeals court halted Judge Bosberg's order that the pipeline be shut down. The halt on the order will remain in place until the appeals court decides whether energy transfer partners can continue to keep oil flowing through the Dakota Access Pipeline while the court decides the company's appeal of the shutdown order. Earth Justice Attorney Jan Hasselman, who represents the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, says that the halt of the shutdown order isn't a predictor of how the court is going to rule but rather buys the court more time to make a decision. In similar news, the Keystone XL pipeline, which is meant to travel from Hardesty, Alberta to Steel City, Nebraska, was dealt a setback by the U.S. Supreme Court on July 6th, that blocked a necessary environmental permit that is required for the pipeline to be built across rivers and streams in the United States. TC Energy, the Calgary-based owner of the pipeline, says that, quote, the company is not giving up on Keystone, end quote. However, the company will have to delay work on large sections of the project. And in more pipeline news, two of the United States' biggest utility companies, Duke Energy and Dominion Energy, announced on July 5th that they have cancelled the Atlantic Coast Natural Gas Pipeline. The companies cited increased costs and legal uncertainties as the reason for the cancellation. The pipeline was originally announced in 2014 and faced many criticisms and legal challenges from environmental and other groups. Pressure on financial companies to stop business with fossil fuel companies also led to a setback on another pipeline. On July 22nd, Swiss insurance company Zurich announced that it has not renewed its coverage of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. An extension planned for the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which delivers oil from Alberta to British Columbia, has faced scrutiny from First Nations that are concerned for the impact on their communities. The $508,000 million of liability insurance that Zurich provided for the pipeline runs until August 2020.
Now, speaking of pipelines and the oil and gas industry, here's Terrett Informer Sonic Patel with an update on environmental reporting and monitoring in the Alberta oil patch. Hello listeners, this is Sonic Patel. Last month, I shared a story about how the Alberta Energy Regulator had suspended environmental regulations for the energy sector in Alberta. Let's follow up on what's developed since. But first, here's a little recap. The Alberta Energy Regulator, or AER, is a corporate entity intended to oversee the development of energy resources in Alberta, including developments in the oil patch. After receiving what they described as legitimate concerns from energy corporations about their ability to conduct monitoring activities in accordance with distancing guidelines to limit the spread of COVID-19, the AER chose to suspend some monitoring requirements. Amongst the many requirements that were suspended include monitoring fumes from burning, detecting or repairing methane emissions, monitoring surface and groundwater unless it escapes to the environment or threatens human health or ecological receptors, and wildlife monitoring. With a few exceptions, the majority of these suspensions did not have a timeline for when the activity would resume. Coupled with the regulator suspension of environmental reporting are orders from the provincial ministries of energy and the environment to lessen their own reporting regulations. Last month, we talked about the problems with this decision, including concerns about suspending wildlife monitoring shortly after many birds died at a tailings pond in the oil sands. The seemingly hypocritical timing of the announcement while the province was discussing relaunching the economy and lessening the pandemic restrictions. And finally, the damage this could have on research activities on the environmental impacts of the oil sands. This research relies on a consistent environmental record to most effectively identify themes and patterns. One of the other concerns with this decision is the unilateral nature of it. Consultation was not done with communities and conservation groups in the area that rely on this monitoring to protect these communities and ecosystems that can be affected by environmental impacts from these projects. This decision was met with substantial opposition, including from numerous environmental groups, as well as the Athabasca-Chippewan First Nation, the Fort Mackay First Nation, and the Miccosukee Cree First Nation. Representatives of these Indigenous communities stated their concern with the decision, citing the lack of consultation and the lack of rationale linking specific monitoring requirements with COVID risks. Because of these concerns, these Indigenous groups have appealed the decision to the AER. Alongside the appeal to the AER, Several environmental and indigenous groups wrote to the federal government to request the government of Canada force Alberta to resume monitoring. Citing concerns to the nearby Wood Buffalo National Park, a UNESCO World Heritage Site downstream of the oil sands, the writers claimed this decision threatens federal jurisdiction. Wood Buffalo has already seen the impacts of adjacent resource development, and it threatens the status of the park. The letter sent to the federal government urge them to withhold any pandemic-related aid to the energy industry until the suspensions are lifted. Also among the critics of the suspension were the opposition party, the NDP. NDP MLA and environmental critic Marlon Schmidt claimed that monitoring activities could have been modified to be safe in the pandemic, 
an opposition leader and former premier, Rachel Notley, called for the head of the regulator to resign after the suspensions. The AER has refuted many of these concerns, claiming that, according to industry statements, over 90% of environmental monitoring requirements and all essential requirements remained. Environmental Minister Jason Nixon defended the lessening of restrictions on environmental reporting because, quote, no monitoring to deal with important issues like drinking water or flowing water has stopped, end quote, and claimed that indigenous consultation did not occur because, quote, there is nothing to consult on because nothing changes as far as agreements with First Nation communities. The government has a responsibility to help organizations and industry be able to keep people safe, end quote. However, this month, the government of Alberta, and shortly after, the Alberta Energy Regulator announced that the suspensions would be lifted, as the province is now in phase two of the pandemic relaunch. The suspensions were claimed to be a temporary relief, as oil and gas companies adjusted to change conditions, and are no longer necessary. This decision is celebrated amongst concerned environmental groups and indigenous groups that oppose the suspensions, and certainly seems like a victory for the environment. But many of the concerned parties remain skeptical as to how this decision came to pass. Mel Grandjean, chief of the Fort Mackay First Nation, expressed his displeasure at the lack of consultation, and noted the dissonance between repeated claims from the province and the Alberta Energy Regulator to work more closely with Indigenous groups, have greater consultation, and responsible decision-making and their exclusion from this critical decision. The appeal to the AER notes concerns that industry proponents can trigger AER decisions, blurring the lines between the regulator and the regulated, and undermining the trust and faith of the entire regulatory process overseen by the AER. But the Alberta Energy Regulator is not just in headlines over this decision to cancel the suspension of environmental monitoring requirements. Also capturing attention is the recent hiring of John Weissenberger as vice president of the regulator. Weissenberger is a geologist, former energy executive, and adjunct professor at the University of Alberta, and notably, former campaign manager to Jason Kenney. Also of concern is that Weissenberger is a public and outspoken climate crisis denier. Weissenberger has published articles calling climate believers delusional, and cited the existence of extreme cold weather events as evidence that the climate crisis is not real. This hiring challenges trust in the AER in two ways. First, connecting the AER to the current premier, when the regulator is expected to be an independent, arm's-length authority. Secondly, hiring a climate science denier challenges faith that the AER will effectively consider greenhouse gas emissions of the oil and gas industry in their regulations a major problem as the industry is one of the largest emitters in Canada. Albertans rely on the Alberta Energy Regulator to evaluate whether the oil and gas industry is operating consistent with established environmental values and considerations. While the Alberta resource sector is facing continued global and local opposition over environmental impacts, recent decisions by the Alberta Energy Regulator leave many Albertans wondering about how well our energy projects are regulated and how well our environment is protected. This has been Sonic Patel. Thanks for listening.
Thank you, Sonic. That's all the time we have for this week. Thanks for tuning in to this month's News Roundup. I've been your host, Hannah Cunningham. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. If you like what you heard, check out our website at terrainforma.ca for past episodes, and find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. If there's a story you think should be broadcasted on the airwaves, or if there's a voice that we should be amplifying, please let us know and send us an email to tara at cjsr.com. Thank you again for listening. Stay safe, look out for each other, and we'll catch you next week right here on Terra Informa. Informa.